Here it is, our final instalment of the interview with Murrayfield Wanderers head coach and founder of Happiness is Egg-Shaped, Bruce Aitchison. Part 4 is a rugby special. If you remember in part 1, Bruce gave us a very comprehensive summary of his rugby coaching career to date, but we couldn't leave it just there. Bruce began coaching at a young age and landed his first head coaching role at just 29. From then on, he's had a plethora of different experiences, and in this final part, we discuss his successes, failures and regrets, and discuss the impact of all those things on his mindset. If you're currently coaching in any sport, you really won't want to miss this. Enjoy. So this focus is, is still on mindset, um, but a little bit more focus on your rugby career. So to start off with, in, in your blog, um, you always you mentioned that you always liked to be a leader, the captain, uh, and that you knew that coaching rugby was always on the horizon. I want to know, how did that mindset impact on your playing career uh, and the relationships with your coaches and your teammates? The Yeah, that's a better... Um, I always like to be a leader, I think probably because I'm the youngest of three boys, so I was always noisy because I needed to be heard or wanted to be heard. Um, but also with that came a bit of knowledge. My oldest brother was a really able footballer and then rugby player. Uh, middle brother was the one I spent the most time with, so we used to talk a lot about games and players and we used to play against each other and uh, we were probably the closest in physical competition so there was a lot of that uh, my dad I think is a leader uh, quite inspirational very knowledgeable in lots of things and was always somebody involved in the community uh, leading things my mum very similar uh, completely different Kettle of fish. My mum's claims she was quiet when she was younger, and uh, just role models who were very, very positive, very involved in things, uh, boys' brigades, community council, sports week organisation, involved at school. Uh, my mum was involved in lots of things and organise things in, in a little village community so there was always that feeling of doers and organisers and making things better and I loved that and I loved being involved and I could see what they got out of that, the places they went, the people they met, how busy the house was or the phone was for the need for mum or dad's opinion or time or energy and then when we started to play, because we lived in such a small place, and as I said earlier, we are playing with older people who had knowledge, so you heard them talking about things, whether it be tactics or just players, or, you know, the only thing we ever spoke about was football, really, or sport, and you were always analysing. And because I was in a small place, 
you're given opportunities. So then going to secondary school, I was like a kid in a candy shop. I lost a lot of concentration because I was distracted by this big place and so many people. But I loved PE, I loved sport, I got involved in everything I could, I just loved it. And because I had that confidence, I think it meant that when I spoke, I don't know if people always listened, but they seemed to, and I, I think I had a manner where people tended to respect what I was saying. One of the reasons I think I became knowledgeable and noisy was because actually physically I wasn't able to do a lot of the things that <laughs> I wanted to do. So organising other people around me to do those things just started to happen. The position that I really wanted to play in rugby at standoff, you dictate a lot of the game. You're you're tactically one of the main players and you got to kick, but you got to pass. And I, I always wondered what people did in other positions. I thought, surely you only play if you get the ball. And in that position, you got a lot of the ball. Uh, I remember when I played in Hong Kong, my best mate in the world was playing at hooker. And one Tuesday night of training, he said, if it hadn't been for lineouts, he wouldn't have touched the ball in the whole game. He never touched the ball other than throwing it into a lineout. And I thought, why would you play if you never got to play with the ball? Obviously, there's other things to do. But... For me, it was always the ball. So if it was always the ball, then I was bothered about where it went, which meant if I kicked it, I had to be confident that that was the right thing to do. If I was passing it, it had to be the right decision. So that then led to... You, you had to be vocal because you had to tell other people what was going on. And just because I loved it, I watched so much of it and spoke to so many people and the relationships I had with my PE teachers who were the rugby coaches meant that we spoke about things and they would ask and they would challenge you at training and in games and after games, why did you do that? What was the best option? Have you thought of this? Well done. Not good enough kind of idea. So it meant that relationship became really strong and you became an extension of the coaches, really. And the group that won the Scottish Cup when I was in sixth year, we'd gone to Canada in fourth year. So... We had 11 six years in the team, the starting 15 that won the Scottish Cup, which doesn't happen often in state schools. But there was a lot of boys who, because of rugby, actually stayed on at school because they loved it so much. And the group that we had and the environment we had was so good. And that team, we massively exceeded potential. There was no one of us was that flash a player. Uh, Pete Coburn, who was a vice-captain, he played for Scottish schools and at the time was one of the best players in the country age group. And I was all right. And after that, nobody else got in any Scotland squads. But as a team, we were pretty strong and we loved being at training and we loved being together. And that culture and environment, while it came mostly from the teacher and the way he led it, we were really important to that from what had happened early. So I saw how important culture was and the different ways you had to approach things. You know, we got we got pasted by some teams that year. We beat teams that we'd lost to for the five years previous. We uh, drew against a couple of good sides. We learned so much and it all built up to this cup final where 
as the captain was just I still not sure how we won that game but we did and a lot of that came from the leadership of me and the other senior players and then when I got into representative teams I was made captain of the South which was a massive honour because I, I loved playing for the South and to be made captain was was a massive honour but and the way it was a massive honour is because it didn't have to be me there were other people that it could have been and for me to be chosen by the coaches and for the players to respect that was a massive lift and being a teacher and coaching when I was at uni coaching a youth team made me think about that and I had to be a leader because those kids needed me to be a leader and then when I went to Hong Kong I was I was so enthusiastic and so young and raw but I had time so I said yes to everything so I got given more and more stuff to do but never with the threat of if it doesn't happen you're out or or if it doesn't happen that's your fault it, there was people there to support there was people there who saw that I had potential and helped me and I became captain and I led the Hong Kong under 16 squad and I just loved being in the middle of it it was it was what gave me such a buzz and I, I loved the thought of leading people and people following I'm still amazed that when I turn up at training, there's 30, 40 guys doing what I've asked them to do. And that's, I get a massive kick out of that. It amazes me that they've not just gone, no, actually, we didn't think that's the right thing to do. But they do. And it's, and I did it as a player. I turned up to train and I did as I was told or I did as I was asked. And that, there's an, a, a respect there that some people never get in their life, ever. And I've, I really treasure it. I think it's a it's an amazing thing. So then when I left Hong Kong and I came back, I became an assistant coach in a far more formal way. But the learning I got from Ian Rankin was absolutely unbelievable. But he'd only taken me on on the word of my PE teacher. Because he'd said to him, what do you think? And the PE teacher said, yeah, go for it. And I learned so much in a whole manner of things. So by the time I got a chance to be a head coach, I was absolutely desperate for it because I felt like everything has come to this point. It's now my chance. And I want to be that coach that I wanted as a player. And actually I got it wrong because I was still so young and naive and looking at it through my eyes without looking at it through anybody else or maybe even willing to accept other people's feedback or involve the players. So I've always been desperate to lead. I love to lead in the classroom. I love to lead in school. I love to come up with ideas. I love to be challenged. I love to have a deadline. I love to... It, it's just something that gets me excited. And that's something that I hope gives other people a bit of inspiration to either do similar or get on board. And uh, you touched on this in, in the previous interview, but when you finally got that opportunity to become a, a head coach... Um, through injury and not recovering maybe at the time um, what was your, your you've maybe just touched on it there as well what was your mindset like as a, as a young coach I wanted it to be perfect and actually the further away I get from it the more I realise how ridiculous that was but I'd had a knee operation and I'd tried to play again but what I thought was going to happen was I just went back to being me 
the player that I had been, whereas actually the game had moved on and I hadn't and I wasn't fast enough beforehand, but having not done anything for the best part of 18 months to two years, I'd got even slower. <laughs> so I came back and I was playing second 15 rugby. I got a tiny little shot in the first team. But I just found it too big a struggle. I couldn't cope being at that level. In every respect, the the standard of refereeing, the preparation at training, the playing on pitches, I'd, I'd been spoiled up until then. I, although I've played a heap of second 15 games, I've been dropped. A, when I first went to Watsonians as a player, I started in the third 15. But it was always with the eye on the prize that I was going to climb. Whereas when I came back after injury, I could see that that was my lot and now I look back on it and when I see players and I hear things from players I think that was me I gave up too easy I talk the talk about loving what you do and being passionate about it and while I maybe give myself a hard time I'm still involved I'm still coaching but actually the thing that I love the most even now is playing and if I get a chance to play in an old boys game or I love to play and I gave it up far too early to become a coach but I'd always had that thought that I was going to be a better coach than I was a player, which wouldn't have been that hard because I wasn't that flash a player. But because of my mindset and because of my understanding of the game, I, I did better than physically I probably should have because I, I could organise other people. I could lead, even though I might not have always been the captain. In that position, I was able to do things and I was able to make up for things I wasn't quite so good at by organising other people but then I used my strengths so I gave up too easy being a player and I probably took that into being a coach and even now when I see coaches and managers on the touchline and in rugby quite often the coaches sit up in a box looking at a laptop and they they're cool and they're calm and I think how can you be like that because I'm so emotionally involved in the game that that's probably still the player in me. I've <laughs> still not distanced myself to become absolutely 100% a coach. You know, I catch myself doing it all the time and I hear people doing it. Who are you shouting at? Like, who's that for? What That thing you just shouted, what impact has that had on anybody other than you feeling better about shouting it? And that comes to me all the time, but it's because I'm so emotionally involved that... I'm st- I still think I can be there and impact it whereas actually a lot of the time the best thing to do is shut up and let the players get on with it and then if we get a chance and a break in play or at half time or after the game we can maybe fix it but when I became head coach sessions were planned to the nth degree we, this was a game plan this is how we're going to do players were going to do this we're going here we're going to do that that's what we're going to eat that's what... whereas actually in our game where the players are only with you for three hours a week and in a game, the impact you can have isn't as great as I thought it was. And because of the game I'm in, people are choosing to play it. They're not, it's not their job. Really. You know, the mortgage doesn't rely on it. So they're choosing to be there. So actually that affects your mindset and how you approach things because it's actually their hobby. They're there to enjoy it. And that might not be that I'm doing everything I can to win. But as a young coach, the only thing I want to do is, I want to win the league, I want to win the cup, I didn't want to get beat, I want to, them to score zero and us to score five tries. And that 
that becomes really overpowering, completely takes over your life, and that was what it did. Uh, the communication, the analysis, the trying to find players, making sure those players were doing that, and, and actually the commitment I was putting in, I couldn't understand why others weren't doing the same. But I think that's because they probably had a better understanding of what you can do and what best to do with the time and resources you've got. And if we if we jump ahead with um, a little while and look at your coaching career afterwards, when you left Murrayfield Wanderers to go and take the job at Muir, how did you feel going into that role? Um, and, and did you believe you had what it took to meet the demands and the expectations? That little spell was probably the most positive I've ever felt because the Watsonians' experience for two years had completely washed me out. Uh, I'd worked so hard, put so much time and effort, but I hadn't worked smart. I'd done a lot of things that were irrelevant, that took me time, effort, energy, and actually I probably wasn't focused on the things that were important. I then went to Murrayfield Wanderers, which was kind of out of the spotlight, a different environment, uh, and really found myself more as a coach and began to understand who I was. And I was very happy, and we were improving, and we were planning for the next season, and things were looking really powerful. And I was, I was really happy. And then we had actually played Muir in the Cup and we'd fought well above our weight. The Cup at that point was in a group stage and we played against clubs higher up than us and we did bloody well. And it was a real eye-opener that something decent was happening. And Muir's coach was leaving and we'd played Muir in the Cup and I'd had a chat to him. I didn't know he was leaving. He didn't know he was leaving at the time. But we had a chat about rugby and about teams and putting squads together and how to create an environment. They were struggling. They were, I think they were bottom of the league at the time. But they gave us a pasting because they were two divisions above us. And it was up Megatland and it was just, you know, we started really well, but we just couldn't sustain it. They were far more powerful than us. And we had a chat after the game and, and he was kind of surprised at my positivity around club rugby, that level... But that, I mean, this is my fantasy league. Like People play fantasy league. This is my fantasy league. I get to build that team. We train, we play, we review. We, it, It's real-life fantasy league. Mm-hmm. And he kind of, he didn't quite get it, but we, we had a chat about it. And then I was speaking to the director of rugby at Boromir about something else. And he said, why have you not applied for the job? And I said, look, I, I didn't realise that it was an application process. I'm happy where I am. And he said, are you interested? And I said, well, of course, because, you know, it's a high level, big club. Uh, while I'm happy where I am, I've got to be realistic that they're not going to climb that, that high at this point. So, you know, I'd love to have a go. So he said, what about coming around a chat? So I went for a chat. didn't realise the chat turned into a formal interview. I rocked up after training one night and there was a panel of three with five questions for me. And about a week later, after they'd offered me the job and I accepted it, one of the panels said, I've never been on a panel where the uh, the person being interviewed has asked more questions than the panel. But I was in quite a n- nice position where I was happy where I was. I felt mm-hmm. like things were getting better. I was getting better. And I wanted to make sure that if I made any jump, it was right. The great thing was they'd already put together the other coaches. 
so that made me feel confident in that they wanted me for that role uh-huh. and I wasn't one of the things that would have concerned me was if they'd gone right now you need to bring in your other coaches because I didn't think there was many people around at that time who would have been able to fulfil it but the coaches were a former professional coach who I absolutely loved to bits and was amazing and taught me so much and I learned so much from him and the other one was an SRU employee academy coach who had never coached in the club game because somebody for the press said to me were you not surprised you got to be head coach when those two were there and I was like well no because the pro coach had no idea about the club game didn't know any of the players didn't know any of the other coaches didn't know anything about the club game and the other one had never coached in the club game so I was the expert I suppose of the club game so I was the head coach but I had two assistant coaches that were just both phenomenal. I loved working with them. It was such a good environment to be in. And it was a case of they'd been relegated. So in some respects, you were hoping that they'd hit the bottom, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and yeah. Anything you did was going to be better. See, before we, we maybe delve in a little bit more about your time there, I just wanted to take, take you back to something you said about when you left Watsonians and you went to Murrayfield Wonders and you went as you said, out the spotlight. Is that something for young coaches or people wanting to make their way in the game? Would you, if you look back at your experience and your time, would you still do the, the stint at Watsonians and then to Murrayfield Wanderers and come back that way or would you try and do it the other way about? You see a lot of, if I'm related to football, ex-professionals starting off in the lower leagues and certain ex-professionals feeling that maybe the lower leagues are too good for them and they would prefer to be higher up the, the table and trying to go for those top jobs just what's your thoughts on, on that I think everybody each to their own journey to have turned down Watsonians would have been bonkers but I'd been there as a player so I knew a lot of the people I knew the club but I also thought I was ready for it like I, I was happy with that and it wasn't so much about it being in the big time but nobody else had asked me to be their head coach it, and it None of it was a plan. I joined as assistant coach not knowing that the head coach knew he was leaving at the end of the season and this was part of the succession planning. I didn't realise that. So when I got asked to do it, if I'd said no, I would have massively regretted it. I could probably have gone to a club further down and become their head coach quicker Mm. than being assistant coach at Watsonians. But just like I was saying before I took chances that I was given and I don't regret them the Watsonians thing I I loved in lots of ways but the further away from it I get the more I see how one I wasn't ready for it but two I didn't have the support around me but then the other bit to two is I might not have listened anyway because I thought here's my chance this is my toy Mm -hmm. and I'm going to play with it how I want to play with it and that was very much what I did. And there was there was lots of things that I didn't see because I was probably focused too much on other stuff. There was bits I missed that I should have given more time and attention to. But I'm also not sure that at that point I had the skills or wherewithal or knowledge to, to have dealt with them anyway. And then I took a year out. And that was a good thing for lots of reasons. But then going to Murrayfield Wanderers, I felt like I was in a strong position and the spotlight wasn't important. It, it was just being able to coach and being able to coach where I thought I was going to be able to do what I wanted to do. 
and get the people in that I want to get in and the group of players being happy with me coming in because you know there's a perception to coaches there's a perception to players and to clubs so you know I wouldn't coach there or you didn't coach there or, you know I've not really got that about too many places but I've always been made really welcome where I've where I've worked and Murrayfield Wanderers had been good to me I'd done bits and pieces with them before and because my school's in the catchment for the area I knew some of them and some of them were ex-pupils and it was a they were ready for it they wanted to be coached and I wanted to coach so it worked and we were probably more realistic they were realistic in their expectations of their coach and I was realistic in what they could achieve and although we drove hard and we did well but we we quite often failed against the teams that were better than us by that I mean there was sort of three or four teams that were competing at the top and we didn't often beat them but we beat everybody else but so did they and they beat us so that was a how did I get the players over the edge to believe they could beat those teams? And that was something maybe they actually weren't prepared for. Maybe that wasn't what was important. But at the time, that was what I thought was important. And mm. that was what we were beginning to work towards. We were beginning to get a group together and working towards things that were making the biggest impact to make that third year a really positive one. And then the Boromir thing came up and it meant yeah. off I went and a lot of what Murrayfield Wanderers were doing left as well. So uh, we're going to discuss your time at Bonnemuir. Um So obviously your first season in charge, you led the first 15 to promotion, promotion into the top flight. Um, your second season, you managed to stay up and also won the, the BT Cup, defeating Hoyk in the, the final. Then your final season, you again stayed up, but unfortunately knocked out of the BT Cup by Hoyk. What I kind of want to get a, a gauge on is your mindset in your first season into your second season and in your and in your final season there. Did it develop? Did it change? Did it regress? What's your, your thoughts on that? Uh, the first season when I met with the two coaches, we said, right, what's the plan? And we came up with a three-year plan. And to be honest, I'm not actually sure where this three-year plan came from. But we said, get up, stay up, top four. That was the three-year plan. The only way really to get up was to win the league. There's a playoff for the second place team against the second bottom team in Prem 1. But that didn't often work. So if you wanted to go up, you had to win. And we thought we had the players to do it. And we recruited three or four really top quality guys that we thought could let us do that. And we went about getting fit and training and working hard to to get up. We then got up, won the league. We had a couple of hiccups. Uh, we lost a couple of games in the league. We lost a close cup game against a team in the, the division above us. But good learning experiences and probably came at the right time. And we got up, and then what happened was people were really buzzing because what you've done is you've built a culture, but you've built it while you've been winning. But what you hadn't been was tested, really. But, you know, we had those three defeats, but we kind of knew that the long game was we were going to go up. We then got up, and we had a really tough middle patch of the season. But you know, really, there's lots of ifs and buts. We had injuries, we had also... What we didn't have was a squad 
really that could go and compete. But what we did was we stayed up and we got better as the season went on. And winning the cup was the perfect storm. And that performance was the result of a lot of stars aligning. But we absolutely nailed it that day. That gave some a bit of an inflated opinion. Uh, not the coaches, but some in the club thought we were bigger than we were. What you need in a cup is a lot of luck. What you need in a league is consistent performance. So we then went up um, to what we thought was a higher standard, but actually we we had another bit of a mid-season tough time that we had to get over, and then we finished the season strongly and finished fifth, which was their highest place for a long, long time. And we thought that things had got got better. What happened in the third season was one of the assistant coaches uh, had to leave because his job with SRU, there was a conflict with coaching at the club. And that was a massive loss because of the areas of responsibility he had or areas of expertise that there's not a lot in. We then brought in a replacement who lasted two weeks and then was also told by his employer that he it was a conflict of interest and he could play. So it meant that we went through the season with a bit of a patch-up job, which wasn't great for anybody. Coaches, players, club, consistency. And that came out in some of the performances. But what we did was we stuck together. And each year I was there, the third 15 did brilliantly. Uh, they won their league. The second 15 was consistent and put pressure on, but also gave the first team players who were moving down somewhere to go and play. And, and give himself a chance to get back up mm. again. So more than just the first 15's performance, the club was in a better nick. And we, the coaching team and, and players, took a lot of pride in that. Uh, but then that was deemed not good enough. And that was that was tough. Because when you're told you're not needed anymore, of course that changes your mindset because then you become far more reflective. What did I do? What could I have done? What should I have done? When should I have done it? And there was lots of learning in there for me, huge amounts, and things that I had seen coming and I hadn't dealt with because we were improving. So I felt reasonably confident. Uh, the team was going through a transition, which we knew, and we were making movements to try and sort of manage that and prepare for the future. Um, so that was, that was a tough shift, uh, and I questioned a lot. But what never came into question was, did I want to coach? Uh, you know, I I could coach anybody, women, kids, men, club, pro, like just it, it's part of me and it's what I want to do. So that was that was a tough shift, but I think I'm better for it and happier for it too. And after that, um. You're obviously now back at Murrayfield. Yep. And uh, how did that feel returning? And is there any, what's the differences between yourself, who's back there now, to the coach you left them? The club's changed massively in lots of ways, but I feel very confident. They've welcomed me back. They've given me every opportunity to succeed. The players have been brilliant. Uh, the club have really embraced it. We've exceeded expectations and hopefully that will continue. And a lot of that has probably come down to 
Bruce being happier and more reflective and more understanding of what's going on, but also the other people around him uh, embracing it and willing to be part of it. And finally, Bruce, you're very active on social media with your Happiness is Egg-Shaped. Could you tell us how that started, what you get up to, and uh, where you see it going in the future? It started with a T-shirt that my oldest brother bought me, and it had Happiness is Egg-Shaped on it. And I started to sign off things on Facebook. I use social media a lot, far too much, actually. And on my own personal Facebook, I started talking about happiness is egg-shaped. And then people started to say, that's you. People started to recognise it as me. They said, oh, you should do this. And I had people that I really respect saying, oh, I love that. And when you're talking about that, and it's so unique and... It just got me thinking and then I put it onto Facebook and people enjoyed it. People that I knew got onto it, but also people I didn't know and I started to reach people and they seemed to quite like a lot of the nonsense that I came out with. And it's there's no controversy on it at all. There's there's no attempt to rile people or wind people up. If it was to be offensive, I'd be really disappointed because there's enough of that elsewhere and... Like I've said before about being positive, that's that's what it is. The game is not perfect, but that's what makes it perfect, as it does with football for you or you know, everybody's entitled to their own and I think it's I think it's the best, but that's just that's my opinion that and I don't want to force that on anybody. But people have enjoyed getting on board with it and I think social media has actually made games like rugby stronger because People have been able to build communities online to talk about it, whereas rugby is actually a bit of a minority sport. And it's in pockets, it's in Wales, it's in the borders, it's in the cities. But now I'm far more aware of rugby clubs I'd never heard of and schools that play rugby and places where rugby is actually a bit of a hotbed. And I'd, I'd never known, I was just a bit ignorant. I'd never been before. And then I got onto Twitter and I couldn't handle Twitter because there wasn't enough on it. I couldn't handle 140 characters. I needed, I needed pages and pages. And I used to do silly rants on my own Facebook and people laughed at them or said it was ridiculous or I'd, they'd wasted a bit of their life getting to the end to read it. But it was all in good nature and that was what I was trying to do. I wasn't trying to rile anybody. So I got onto Twitter and then I actually started to get into it and you can follow some pretty interesting people and get close to people that otherwise you never would. And I learn a lot. I use Twitter for my own development because I follow people that I respect. And Ben Ryan, somebody that I just think is brilliant and his take on not just rugby, but on sport and developing relationships and creating a culture just speaks to me massively. Uh, And I also think it's great that he wasn't necessarily a big name, but he's achieved things. Damien Hughes, I read his book because I found him on Twitter and now I love what he tweets, I love his books um, and he engages with you. You know, there's a lot of people that don't engage with you, which is is fine because they're busy people and it's not just me, there's millions of other people Mm -hmm. following them. But there are people that you can can get to and you can get something back from and I I get a kick out of that. And then a friend of mine, Jenny, who is on Twitter as well, uh, is one of those amazingly positive people. She's a teacher and now she works for Apple and does all kinds of amazing things. She helped me set up my website to 
gather everything and give it a, a bit of a point of reference really because I was writing for things like Scrum Magazine or I got asked to do things for a couple of websites and began to think maybe I could do this on my own and if they want to use my stuff it becomes mm -hmm. mine rather than me doing it for them. And it just grew and then I, I got hats and people started wearing hats and now if I go anywhere and I'm not wearing a green, white and black hat, they go, what, why are you wearing a red hat? You're that's not your hat and it, it's become it's become a bit of identity really mm -hmm. for me but people have enjoyed being part of it and people say that their happiness is egg-shaped and and if, I deliberately didn't want it to be massively rugby specific so kids at school think it's because I've got a bald head <laughs> like <laughs> my happiness is my bald head egg-shaped and uh, somebody said to me when they saw the logo they said Happiness is three ninety nine shaped. What is what does that mean? You know, it's, so it's just it's just a bit daft, uh, and I, I enjoy it. And it's it's opened up unbelievable doors for me. I got to go and play at Twickenham last year because a connection I made on Twitter through somebody similarly affected with rugby who said I've I've got the chance to have a touch team at Twickenham. Do you fancy coming to play? I was like, of course I do. He's like, are you sure? Where are you based? I'm like, Edinburgh. He's like, can you get to... I was like, I'll get to Twickenham. If I'm getting to get changed in England changing room and play at Twickenham, I'll be there. You know, and, and these things have just become brilliant. And photographers that I've got to know who now come and take pictures of our games and I've taken some of the best pictures of my kids that I own and that means a huge amount to me. So... Happiness Egg Shape started off as a daft thing on Facebook that kept me quiet for a while, I think, and gave me an outlet. Because I didn't go to the pub, so I didn't go and... I've not got a soapbox, really, so social media is my my way of getting things off my chest or trying to be funny. You know, the kids at school, my own kids, you're not funny. And I kind of like that because it either makes me try harder or I try and be even less funny. And I've I've now started to get asked to do things like this, which I love because it makes me think. And I get to speak to folk like you because we're organising it. We've been saying for years, let's meet up, and we've never yeah. done it. And then as soon as it becomes something like this, we meet up and we enjoy yeah. chatting to each other. Um, I go and speak at rugby clubs. I've been... I did something for Scottish Beach Volleyball two weeks ago, and it was one of the most positive environments I've been in. A really minority sport. I mean, beach volleyball in Scotland. Are you mad? Yeah. But they're all mad because they all love it and they all support each other. And the Scottish coach Graham Riddle is a mate of mine for school. We've known each other for more than twenty years, and he's going to the Gold Coast as the head coach of Scottish beach volleyball. And I'm sitting next to Robin Brodsky whose name's much longer than that, but that's how I shorten it, who's going to represent Scotland at beach volleyball. And he's a one of the loveliest, nicest, sickeningly handsome, physically talented, intelligent guys you'll ever meet. And I would never have got that chance if it hadn't been for Happiness Egg Shaped giving me the chance to go and speak to people. And I'm still waiting for people to go, right, we've had enough now. I'm, I'm still amazed that people are really that bothered about listening to what I've got to say. But even if people weren't listed, I would still talk. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been able to meet people, I've been places, and it's it's going to keep going 
and even if it's just me I'll still be happy but I love that it's kind of affected other people and people have said to me keep going or I love your stuff but I've also heard people say it gets a bit much and I remember seeing Billy Connolly saying people always come up to him and say oh I don't really like a lot of the stuff that you do and he's like well fine switch me off and that's kind of how I feel if, if it's too much for you and it's you know, it's saturated on social media. It's easy, just unfollow, it's fine. There's no offence mm -hmm. taken because there's things I can't be bothered listening to. There's there's people that when you see what they post, you think, oh, no, again. And I've no doubt that's what people think about happiness is egg-shaped. But I don't think I'm threatening MD. I don't think I'm intimidating MD. I don't think there's any malice. So if it's not for you, that's okay. But if it is for you, then join in and... And let's just have a bit of fun using rugby as the vehicle to meet people and share experiences. And that's that's the thing above all that I love and, and it's my passion. And my kids think it's funny that daddy's got a website. You know, and they think it's funny that people have got happiness is egg-shaped hats and we meet them at Murrayfield when we go to games and look, daddy, they're wearing your hat. And it might be somebody I know, but it also might be somebody that's ordered one off the website and you know, I can go up and have a chat to them and say, you're wearing my hat. And then I get to meet somebody that otherwise I wouldn't have got to meet. So it's just a big excuse for me to be sociable, really. And that's brought me a lot of joy and a lot of nice experiences and I hope that it's going to continue. And the best place to get you, get on Facebook? Facebook, Happiness is Egg Shaped, on Twitter, at Happy Egg Shaped. And other than that, wearing a green, black and white hat walking along which the street. Which I now have. Which you now have. And so. a lot of folk didn't like because certain football teams didn't like green and certain other, but again, it's not intended. It's it's supposed to be green for grass. And the white and black is just what the writing is on my badge so that it's not to be affiliated with any team in any way, shape or form. And if that upsets you, that's okay. You don't need to order one, it's fine. And people have said, are you going to do other colours? I'm like, no, because that's more hassle. <laughs> and it takes up time. So once these hats are gone, they're gone. So buy now or, or yeah. forever be without. Bruce, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, mate. Love it. Is your happiness egg-shaped? Uh, well, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> it is now. It is now, mate. It is now. Thanks for listening. Any feedback, tweet us at The Curve Mindset or email us at thecurvemindset at gmail.com. Thanks.